So we are continuing our series in Christology, specifically looking at the resurrection of Christ. If you were here last Sunday evening, um, we consider the resurrection and the implications if Christ is not raised. And I hope all of you uh, at least or took notice to uh, the the seriousness uh, of the resurrection, that if Christ is not raised, then essentially we are still in our sins, that there is no hope for Christianity. Uh, this evening, now I want to look at the resurrection from a little uh, different point of view, uh, but not merely the resurrection itself, but more so how we see the resurrection as an example of the Trinity at work in the dispensation of salvation, so to speak. And we see the Trinity at work at the entirety of salvation. So, um, if uh, if you are a little bit tired, then I suggest you uh, try your best to awaken all your all of your faculties because uh, I'm going to attempt to bring together two of the hardest things in theology, which is the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity and how they relate with one another. Because when we think about salvation, it's not merely just a Christ thing in isolation from the Father and the Spirit. But rather, salvation is a Trinitarian work. And that's how we must think of salvation. That's how we must think of creation itself. That's how we must think of the Christian life. So um, we'll, consider, we'll consider that this evening. The question I have for you this evening, though, um, in relation to the resurrection, is if someone was to ask you, who raised Jesus from the dead, what would your answer be? If someone was to ask you, who raised up Jesus from the dead? In his article titled, Who Raised Up Jesus? John Murray asked this important question. He says, when we say God raised Jesus, are we using the name God in the more absolute and indefinite sense of the Godhead? Or are we using the name more specifically of the Father or of the Son or of the Holy Spirit? So I want you to grasp what he's saying when when we say God raised Jesus from the dead, what do we mean by the name God? Is it merely just the Father alone? Is it just the Son alone? Is it the Spirit alone? Um, or are we using God in a generic sense? And this question that John Murray raises is an important question, not merely in regards to who raised up Jesus, but in regards to the entire dispensation of salvation. Who is at work in salvation? And the answer that we find, or if we get to the answer of who raised up Christ, then we'll get to the answer of who's responsible for the entirety of our salvation. Is it merely just the Father alone? Is it the Son alone? Or is it the Spirit alone? For example, when we say God saved us, and we love, we tend to say that frequently, right? God saved me. What do we mean by the name God? Or when we say that we are saved by Jesus Christ, does that mean that we are saved by Jesus apart from the Father and the Spirit? What do we mean? Is the salvation just merely a Christ thing or is it a Christ plus the Father and the Spirit thing? And the answer that scripture gives to us is that the history of, and the history of the church has taught us that the work of salvation is a Trinitarian work. So who raised up Jesus? I'm going to give you the answer already. The Trinity raised up Jesus. I'm presupposing already the Trinity when I say God. So when I say 
God raised up Christ from the dead. What I mean by that is the Father, Son, and the Spirit raised up Christ from the dead. Who saved us? The Father and the Son and the Spirit has saved us. We are saved by the Father, through the Son, and in the Holy Spirit, or by the Holy Spirit. Now, to get out our question this evening, who raised up Christ from the dead? Was it Jesus upon his own power? Was it the Father alone? Or maybe it was was it strictly a work by the Holy Spirit? Um, There are some in in some theologians that want to attribute the the, the resurrection of Christ merely to just one person. And a lot of times it's just the Holy Spirit. Um, for those who want to hold on what is called spirit Christology. Or they might isolate the resurrection of Christ strictly to the Father, in which we can't do that. Um, but rather we must attribute the work of the resurrection to all three persons. Now to unfold that statement, the raising of the human Christ from dead was a work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We must first consider the doctrine of the Trinity. And secondly, I want us to see the work of the Trinity, not merely at Christ's resurrection, but also in the entire work of salvation. So first we'll consider what is the doctrine of the Trinity. And secondly, we'll look at Christ's resurrection as the work of the Trinity, but also in the entire uh, dispensation of salvation. So point number one, the doctrine of the Trinity. This by no means is going to be an exhaustive teaching of the Holy Trinity, um, because I frankly um, can't do it, and we don't have enough time uh, to do it. But what I will do, though, is just give us a large brushstroke picture of our God who is triune. Um, and if there's anything that we must know as far as salvation, it is who Christ is and also who the triune God is. We must get these two core doctrines right. Who is Christ and what is or who is the Trinity? Well, like all doctrine, we must allow Scripture to control what we mean and define what we mean. So how do we begin to speak about the Trinity? How does one enter into the mystery of the Trinity? And the doctrine of the Trinity is what theologians have called supernatural theology. The doctrine of the Trinity is what theologians have called supernatural theology. Now, if you remember in our lessons that we had during our quarantine times, I did a lecture on natural theology and supernatural theology. Natural theology is basically that, that theology in which man can come to a knowledge of God, of who God is, by observing the creation around him. So man can observe the created things, and then by observing the created things or the created order, man can come to a conclusion apart from Revelation saying that there is a God. Supernatural theology, though, takes it a step further. It takes it to a place where natural theology cannot go and that natural man cannot go. And that is supernatural theology teaches us that God is not merely one, but he is triune. It teaches us that we are sinners in Adam, but also that we are in need of a savior. So the doctrine of the Trinity, if you're taking notes, is supernatural theology. It is to say uh, the revelation of the Trinity can only be known by God revealing himself in his word. The revelation of the Trinity can only be known by God revealing himself in his word. You can't look out and see three mountains and say there's a Trinity. 
That's a revelation of the Trinity. Or you see three waterfalls coming down, making two, making down, making one water and say, oh, there's a Trinity. That, no, that's not how God reveals himself. God doesn't reveal himself as triune through the created order. But rather, God reveals himself as triune through his word. That's how we find out who God is in the sense of um, his three persons. But also, you can only know and embrace the doctrine of the Trinity by being indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So what is the, the two prerequisites for knowing the Trinity? First, it's being indwelt by the Spirit, but also it's for God revealing himself in his word. Now, there's a difference. There's a lot of people that can study the Trinity and reject it. But they're not indwelt with God's spirit to embrace and love it. Or, not it, but him. The great church father, Basil Caesarea, says this. This is beautiful. The way to divine knowledge, so the way to the things of God, knowing who God is, the way to divine knowledge, ascends from one spirit through the one son to the one father. Likewise, natural goodness, inherent holiness, and royal dignity reaches from the Father through the begotten Son to the Spirit. What Paul is saying is our path into the mystery of the Trinity begins with the Holy Spirit. And in and through the Son leads to the Father. That is what Basel is saying. He says, quote, for our mind, enlightened by the Spirit, looks upon the Son, and in him, as in the image, beholds the Father. So in the spirit, we have the greatest revelation of the Trinity, which is the incarnation of the eternal son. And then when we see the son, we see the image of the father. It is in the spirit that we are able to know the son and thereby in knowing the son, we have access to the father. Now, how do we explain the Trinity? Well, all of our Trinitarian explanations must begin with the one divine essence or the oneness of God. All of our Trinitarian explanations must begin with the one divine essence or the oneness of God. So how do we explain the Trinity first and foremost? There is one God. There is one God. The reason is because the oneness of God is the foundation and the base that we must hold on to and never let go no matter what. No matter what we say about the three persons, we must hold on firmly and tightly to the oneness of God but also because scripture begins with the oneness of God. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your mind. Uh, Deuteronomy 4:35, Isaiah 45, 5, Isaiah 44, 6 through 8, Malachi 2, 10. Each of these verses speak to the one divine essence that is the being of God. So how do we enter the Trinity or to the mystery of the Trinity and explain it? There is one God. Why not three gods? Well, we can get into various philosophical reasons, but more importantly, Scripture says that there's one God. That's the reason why there's one God. And this is the point that we must get correct, friends. So there is one God. Now the next step. Where do we go now? Along with the Scripture's declaration that there is one God, Scripture identifies the one God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Along with the declaration that there is one God, Scripture identifies this one God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this is where things start to get a little fuzzy. So stay with me. 
Historically, theologians have identified the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three divine persons, or as our confession wants to say, three subsistences. Scripture identifies the Father as God, the Son as God, and the Spirit as God. The Father has the whole divine essence, the Son has the whole divine essence, and the Spirit has the whole divine essence. But there's not three gods. There's one God. And it's interesting because I have the essence of humanity. Anthony has the essence of humanity. And Hilda has the essence of humanity. And we make up three people, individual people. But we can't, we can't say that about God, though. Because the Father has the whole divine essence, all of what it means to be God. And the Son has the divine essence, all of what it means to be God. And the Spirit has the divine essence, all of what it means to be God. Doesn't mean that there's three people. Individual people. And also we must note that the Father is not one-third God. The Son is not one-third God. And the Spirit is not one-third God. Mix, shake well, you get the Trinity. That's not how we to think as well. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. And the Spirit is fully God. And Scripture identifies these three persons, divine persons, each as truly and fully God. And in the gates... That there's three gods, but one God. Thirdly, and I know I wish, I I would love to explain that more, but that's where we are. (laughs) Thirdly, in addition to scripture identifying the one God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it also identifies the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct. There's one God. This one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they're distinct from one another. There's There's a real distinction between the Father, between the Son, and between the Spirit. In other words, there is something that makes the Father really distinct from the Son. And there is something about the Son that makes the Son really distinct from the Father and the Spirit. Because what we don't want to do is we don't want to collapse the Father and the Son and the Spirit to where they're they're, 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 they're so united in the divine essence that now they're, they're just one God and there's no distinction between the three. So what makes the Father, Son, and Spirit distinct? What makes the Father different from the Son? And what makes the Son different from the Holy Spirit? Well, this is where we get into the controversy in the fourth century. Because a man named Arius would want to say, well, what makes the Son distinct from the Father is that the Son is less God than the Father. That sounds about right. And here we have the great men throughout the first, fourth century. They want to say, by no means, as hard as it is, we do not say what makes the Father distinct from the Son and what makes the Son distinct from the Father is the divine essence. In other words, the Father is not more God than the Son. And the Son is not less God than the Father. And the Spirit is not less God than the Father and the Son. But each are truly and fully God. So what makes the three persons distinct? What makes the three persons distinct is their name and what their name signifies. What makes the three persons distinct is their name and what their name signifies. And what their name is going to signify is merely the real relation between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
the real relation. There is a real relation between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our confession of faith explains this well in chapter 2. The Father is of none. So here, here's what makes it the Father distinct from the Son. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor preceding. That's what makes him distinct. That is what's called his personal property. The Son is eternally begotten from the Father. That's what makes him distinct from the Father. And the Holy Spirit it proceeds from the Father and the Son. So in other words, what makes the Father distinct from the Son? The Father is unbegotten. What makes the Son distinct from the Father? The Son is begotten. What makes the Spirit distinct from the Father and the Son? The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's the name, but also what the name signifies. The name signifies a relation. You can't have a father without a son. And you can't be a son without a father, or rather, a parent, or have a parent. So, an overview of the Trinity. There is one God. Scripture identifies the one God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What what makes the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit distinct? It is that the Father is unbegotten, the Spirit, the Father is unbegotten, the Son is unbegotten, the, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son. Some theologians, if you want to go a little bit more deeper, have called this um, the relations of origin or and all that. But that's essentially a a million feet in the air flyover overview of the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's beautiful and it's grand. And I don't say this enough, but study our triune God. Study the mystery of our Trinity or of, of God who is Holy Trinity. Okay, now the question at hand, how did this relate to Jesus Christ and the resurrection? Anytime we are speaking of the work of Christ, we are implicitly speaking of the work of the Trinity. That's important to note. Anytime we are speaking of the work of Christ, we are, in, we are implicitly talking about the work of the Trinity. So how do we approach the relationship between Christ and the Trinity? When one asks, why did God become man? There's a number of answers that theologians have given throughout the history of the church. A number of them. And I think that they are all true to a certain extent. But one of the answers that relates to our topic this evening was given by Thomas Aquinas. And for Aquinas, the reason why the eternal son became incarnate was both relevatory and salvific. The reason why the eternal son became incarnate was both relevatory and salvific. What does he mean by that? He means the, the eternal son became man to reveal the Trinity and to save man and to invite them into the very life of the Trinity. Again, the eternal son became man to reveal the Trinity, to reveal his father in a most perfect and complete way. And we know that Jesus Christ is indwelt by the spirit and also to save man. And to invite man into this loving fellowship with the Trinity. This is one of the most beautiful things that Christ does for our salvation. It is just inviting us into the very life and fellowship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's grand. And this revealing of the Trinity through the person and work of Christ is all throughout the New Testament. I mean... You can't read the New Testament and the Gospels and not read about Jesus talking about doing the will of the Father. You can't read the New Testament and read the four Gospels and, and hear of Jesus being indwelt by the Spirit and speaking about uh, how he will pour out the Spirit. And what I want us to focus in on for the rest of this lesson is the work of the Trinity 
throughout the earthly life of Christ, earthly life of Christ, which is going to climax in his resurrection. So the work of the Trinity in the early earthly life of Christ. So how do we see the Trinity at work in the life of Christ? And it's going to climax in his resurrection because I've already said the Trinity is a, the, the, the resurrection is a Trinitarian work. It's by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, the first place we see the work of the Trinity is in the life of Christ is at the moment of conception. At the moment of conception. Luke 134 uh, says this. After the angel told Mary that she will bear a son, she says in verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am born, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Mary's like, how in the world am I going to get pregnant if I'm a virgin? Well, the angel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. What do we see there? Well, who's the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. But notice what Hebrews 10.5 says. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Who is Christ speaking of? He's speaking of God the Father, preparing a body for him. In these two cases, we see the triune God at work, specifically in the forming and framing of the human nature of Christ and the preparing the body of human of the human Christ. In Luke, the angel says the Holy Spirit will overshadow the womb of Mary. And in Hebrews, Christ says the Father has prepared the body for Christ. We see a Trinitarian work in the forming and framing the human nature of Christ. In both cases, we see the conception and birth of Jesus Christ in the work of the Trinity. Now, let me, this is important to note. And uh, I wish I could go more on this, but but we, you're just going to have to ask me after. When the scripture identifies in Luke chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit overshadows the womb of Mary. And then in Hebrews, when it says that the Father or God has prepared a body for Christ. We aren't to think this. We aren't to read that, oh, the Holy Spirit in isolation from the Father and the Son overshadowed the womb of Mary. And we aren't to think when we read in Hebrews, oh, it's only the Father that prepared the body of Christ. But rather, when the Holy Spirit overshadowed the womb of Mary, he didn't do that in isolation from the Father and the Son. And when in Hebrews, the father prepared a body for Christ, he didn't do that in isolation from the son of the spirit. But what we see is the work of the Trinity. And this is important. The work of the Trinity is an undivided work. The work of the Trinity is a undivided work. What that means is we don't have the spirit doing his job. The son doing his job. And then the father doing his job. But rather, because there is one will, there is one work. So anytime we see the Holy Spirit, or the scripture identifies the Holy Spirit doing something, and it seems that the Holy Spirit is only doing it in isolation from the Father and the Son, no. But rather, the Holy Spirit does not work apart from the Father and the Son. The Father is not working apart from the Son and the Spirit. And this is why there's a Trinitarian aspect to the work of salvation because Christ is not working apart from the Father and the Spirit. But as Jesus says, 
Just as the Father is working, I am working. <clears throat> now, uh, ask me later why Scripture identifies the one work uh, to just one specific person of the Trinity, because there is a reason there. But uh, we have in these two cases the triune God at work. Secondly, we see the Trinity at work at Christ's baptism. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descending upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Do we see a work of the Trinity there? Of course we do. We see the sun in the waters of being about to be baptized. We see the spirit descending like a dove. And we see the father pronouncing his pleasure with the son. At Christ's baptism, we see the three persons of the Trinity. And what we see here is a divine equipping where Jesus Christ is publicly announced or anointed for his messianic ministry. That's not to say that Jesus at his baptism didn't have the Holy Spirit, but rather there was a fresh point uh, pouring of anointing upon the human Christ because what's going to happen after Christ is baptized? He's going to have a showdown with Satan in the wilderness. So there is a divine equipping that's happening at Christ's baptism where we see the Holy Spirit coming upon the human Christ, and we see the Father pronouncing his great pleasure with the Father, or with the Son. And then we can go off, and we can see the various ways in which the Trinity works in the salvation of Christ, or in our salvation. What we have next, we have the temptation of Christ, and what we see there is the eternal Son, in all of his human frailty, battling with Satan, but he's not alone. He's anointed without measure by the Spirit. And what and what causes Christ, the human Christ, to defeat Satan? It is doing the will of the Father. It is constantly doing the will of the Father. We see an unveiling of the Trinity also at the transfiguration. We see the unveiling of the Trinity also in Christ's prayers. I mean, if you read John 17, if you read various prayers of Christ... It's, he's so Trinitarian when he prays. But also, saints, we see the Trinity at work at the death of Christ. We see the Trinity at work in the death of Christ. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, we tend to read this verse and we totally miss its Trinitarian implications. This verse speaks loud and clear about the doctrine of the Trinity. Now you might say, okay, where do we see the Trinity here? I see Son, I see God, I don't see the Holy Spirit. Where is the Trinity? Well, first, we have, for God so loved the world. Well, who's God in this passage? Well, it's the Father. Because what you find in the New Testament is when all three persons are mentioned, usually it's the Father that's given the title God. And Jesus is given the title Lord. Then we have, so, so we have, for God so loved the world, we have the Father. That he gave his only Son, so we have the Son. But where's the Holy Spirit? I will argue that eternal life implies the Holy Spirit. And let me give you the reason why. Because what does Christ just tell Nicodemus? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. 
So in order to have this new birth, that Christ is speaking to Nicod- Nicodemus like, what do you mean? I-, I can't be born again. I can't go back in my mother's womb. So how does this new birth happen? Well, Jesus says, you must have the spirit. So I take eternal life implying the Holy Spirit by Christ's words and his conversation with Nicodemus. But if you don't believe me, here's Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas says, uh, this verse involves the greatest love. Because of who is loving, the Father, and who is given to the world, the Son. Isn't that beautiful? That this verse involves the greatest love. Because of who is loving, the Father, and who is given to the world, the Son. And then he says, in person, in his divine mission, which culminates in him being handed over for us all in his passion. So, John 3.16 speaks about this great love of the Father handing his beloved Son over to experience the passion, which is suffering and death. And what's the what, what does Christ's passion produce? Thomas Aquinas says, produces the greatest possible fruit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit in Trinitarian language, is often referred to as the bond of love between the Father and the Son. So by Christ's passion, what happens? What what does Christ produce? He gives to us the bond of love between the Father and the Son. That's beautiful, is it not? Now, let's consider the resurrection and the Trinity. Back to our question in the beginning, who raised up Christ? The Bible attributes the resurrection of Christ to all three persons of the Trinity. The Bible attributes the resurrection of Christ to all three persons of the Trinity. Let's consider the Father. The Father raised up Christ from the dead. Acts 2, verse 24. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by. God raised him up. God raised who up? God raised his son, Jesus Christ, up. That First Thessalonians um, 9, 9 through 10. I forgot the chapter. Chapter 1. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So here we see this true God who has turned men from idols to serve him, raised his son from the dead. So here the Bible is attributing the work of the resurrection of Christ to God the Father. 1 Corinthians 6.14, And God raised the Lord, and I also and also raised us up by his power. God raised the Lord. God here is a reference to the Father. Lord here is a reference to the Son. And I can multiply verses that speak of the Father raising Jesus from the dead. But in addition to the Father raising Christ from the dead... We also see the resurrection of Christ as a work of the Son. John 10, 18, which is probably the, the chief verse of Christ's own resurrection, of, or rather him raising himself from the dead. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You, you can't get any clearer than that, Right? John 2, 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. I mean, you, you can't get any more clear 
Jesus says of himself, I'm going to raise myself up from the dead. Now, it's different from Lazarus. Because Lazarus raises from the dead, but Lazarus depends on a divine power. And in a way, the same can be said of Christ. That is, the human Christ depends on a divine power. But Christ does this on his own authority in and of himself, though. That's not to say. Jesus Christ raises himself from the dead. Now, what do we mean when we say Jesus raises himself from the dead? That's kind of hard to to think about, right? Well, simply put, Jesus Christ, who is the eternal son, raised his humanity from the dead. That is to say, Jesus Christ, by his divine power, united his body and soul, his human body and soul. And lastly, we see the Holy Spirit as the cause of Christ's resurrection. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, concerning his son, who was declared, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. So here Paul is saying that Jesus Christ was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.16, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, so he was brought about, people saw him, and he was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, a clear reference of the Holy Spirit, in the work of resurrecting Christ. In fact, we will get to this next month, but it is the Holy Spirit that has a peculiar role in Christ's justification when he is raised from the dead. And thereby, Christ is able to pour out the Spirit in full measure to the church. We'll get there, though. So what do we learn from these verses? We see that the resurrection of Christ is one unified work of the Trinity. And that's, if there's anything that you, that you didn't get, this is the most, one of the most essential. It has, the work of the resurrection of Christ is one unified work of the triune God. It is the will of the Father, the will of the Son, and the will of the Spirit. Mind you, there's not three wills, but one will. And this one will, in act, raises the human Christ from the dead. All three persons are involved in raising the humanity of Christ from the dead. Now, as we come to, or as we start coming to a close, this Trinitarian work of salvation, or of raising Christ from the dead, is just another example of how the entire work of salvation is a work of the triune God. And that's really what I want you to see tonight also is that the work of the Trinity in raising the human Christ from the dead is just an example, which the highest example of the entire work of salvation being a work of the triune God. So when we think of salvation, yes, Jesus Christ takes on a peculiar role. The Father didn't become incarnate, nor the Son. Jesus Christ does, the eternal Son. But rather, Jesus Christ does not work out our salvation in isolation from being indwelt by the Spirit, but also doing the will of the Father. It's an undivided work to bring man into salvation and to invite man into the loving communion of the Trinity. And this, saints, is how we are to think about the work of Christ. You see, when we think of the work of Christ, we tend to speak of just Jesus Christ 
dies for us, or rather lives, dies, and rises for us, so that our sins can be forgiven. And so that God can no longer see me as a sinner, but he can see me as a saint. And by no means, I am not negating that. It is a grand thing that we have forgiveness of sins. And we are to think of salvation in, in a lot of ways that, in those, in those ways, that we have forgiveness of sins because of the life of Christ and the death of Christ. But saints, we can't miss the Trinitarian movement of salvation as well. Meaning we must not think of the benefits of salvation as merely just forgiveness of sins, but it's broader than that. It's much broader than just Jesus Christ forgives me of my sins. But we must think of the benefits of Christ as a return to the Father through the Son in and by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a return to God. As Thomas Aquinas says, the whole totality of the work of, of divine work is a manner, is in a manner brought to completion through the incarnation. Since man, who was the last to be created, returns in a certain circular movement to his first principle, united to the very principle of all things through the work of the incarnation. That is to say, the salvation of man finds its ultimate goal, not merely in forgiveness of sins, but it finds its ultimate goal in its return to the Trinity. That's what it means, that we are in union with God. We'll speak more about this in the coming months when we talk about union with Christ. But when we read scripture, we read of this exit and return theme, this exit from God, creation comes from God, in creation, and in salvation, creation returns back to God. And that only happens through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That is to say, all things come from God and make its return to God. But because of sin, can man return to God? No. Man can't, in and of himself, return to God. There is no, there is no uh, bridges. There is no highways. There are no roads that can lead man back to God. But what we see in the incarnation, what we see when the eternal son takes on flesh is the death, the final death of man ever attempting to climb the ladder and return to God. The incarnation screams, saints, that you can't climb the ladder, but rather God through his son has came down the ladder and came down to man. And what does he do? He indwells you with the spirit and grabs you by the hand as you return to the father. It is only Jesus Christ that opens up our return to the father. And this return to the father is accomplished in a Trinitarian manner. How do we return to God in a Trinitarian manner? The father sends the son. The Son assumes human flesh to live, die, rise, and ascend to us. The Spirit is poured out from the Father through the Son so that in the Spirit we can be joined to Christ and return to the Father. Are you indwelt with the Spirit? If you are, yes, amen. And because you are indwelt with the Spirit, you are now united to Jesus Christ, the Son. And as you conform more and more into the image of the Son... You are invited 
into this loving fellowship with the Father. Saints, this is what it means when Paul says to be reconciled to God. It's to be reconciled not merely to just the divine essence who is God, but more so the divine essence who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. By the sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit, we are united to the Son and drawn into the loving fellowship of the Father. And when will this return finally be complete, saints? When will it finally be complete? It's when, as Pastor Antonio spoke of this morning, when we enter into that celestial city and we behold the face of God. That in the spirit, we will see the Son. And when we see the Son, we will see the Father. Let's pray.